Welcome to Clover Club, a podcast about curious conversations and stories intended to make you laugh and learn. I'm your host, Erica, and today I'm so excited to have Mo Patel. Mo is the Chief Medical Officer for the National Center for Immunizations and Respiratory Diseases at the CDC. She is also a pediatrician and in her spare time recently got her MBA. And today we're here to talk to you about all sorts of interesting things. So Mo, hi! Hi, Erica. I'm so excited to have you up here on Clover Club. Oh my God. I'm like so honored that you asked me to do this. Really? I'm this honored is... you said yes. <laughs> I feel like with us, like given that we've known each other for so long that this feels a little weird to me, but also... That's true. It feels very formal because Mo yes. is... How long have we known each other? I moved back to Atlanta in 2010 from okay. New York. So I feel like I went right to you. I'm like... Because a girl got to get her hair done. That's right. So like 13, oh my God, like going on 14 years. Yeah. It's amazing. It's, uh, yeah. Okay. I love it. I love us. It's, I love us. <laughs> it's been a great 14 years. One of the things, one of the millions of things that I love about you, Mo, is that every time I know that you're on my schedule, which these days is more and more often, which I love, um, uh, uh, Mo is somebody who invites me to be like my best self. Like I know we're going to have a really deep, interesting, insightful conversation about such a range of topics. And I just know I'm going to leave your appointments like feeling good. And I feel like we always have some sort of conversation where for like hours or days afterwards, I'm like still thinking about it, you know? Uh And I think you are somebody who's willing to like go there and get to a conversational level where others may stop digging type of thing. And so I'm kind of excited to just like document one of these conversations and share that with people. I know. So I feel the same about you. Lots to learn, even though I feel like there's actually quite a significant age gap between us. Is there? I Maybe at least 10 years. No. Well, I'm 48. <gasps> okay. First off, I think my brain stopped accepting you have birthdays <laughs> around 38 <laughs> because you look 28. <laughs> Unfair. I mean, keep saying that to me. I love that. But yeah, we're like kindred spirits on so many things. There's so much that I feel that I can talk to you about and get really deep about and really <laughs> candid about. And yes. it's, I don't feel like, you know, as you move through life, like the friend circle starts to get thinner and thinner because yes. you're just not exposed as much to different people. It's true. And so when you find these like gems, which I think of you as one of my gems, Likewise. then you you hang on and you keep exploring and you keep discovering. And I don't feel like our conversations are ever static. Oh God, no. The like opposite of static. Earlier today. <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to share what earlier today was? Um... <laughs> Well, I mean, do you want to sing for us? Because well, that would be great. I was just about to say, here's what earlier today entailed. We did a whole round of accents from all over the world, and Mo won for Indian. <laughs> but you called me a cheater. You are a cheater, Mo Patel. <laughs> <laughs> did I win? What was my best I one? I think your best accent was Russian for some <laughs> random reason, which makes me worried that you're like a spy. 
I would be. I mean, I did just watch Oppenheimer, so it's a little bit like on my <laughs> on, the, on my frontal lobe. <laughs> I would love to be a spy. I'm super into that type of. Well, stuff. Uh, do you remember us trying to be spies at the Atlanta Spy Association? <laughs> oh my god! I'm still a member, by the way. Are you okay? Hold on, that's a little story we have to tell. Actually, I'm so <laughs> glad you mentioned that because actually I didn't remember that. Well, it wasn't front of mind, obviously. So one day, Mo was here with an appointment, and she was like. Erica, do you care about Havana syndrome? And I was like, actually, yes. I'm very intrigued by Havana syndrome. And you invited me to this like symposium about Havana syndrome. And so I decided to go. And then you bailed. And so I showed up to like Fat John's catcher in the rye fish store. And there's like (laughs) 50 old white guys in like Oakley sunglasses and tweed blazers standing around talking about Havana syndrome. And then afterwards, the like main dude for the spy club was like in my inbox trying to take me out to coffee. IDKY. It was the weirdest situation. And I was just like, I cannot believe I'm sitting here alone. I'm so sorry that I bailed on you, but this is what spies do. (laughs) We're unpredictable. You had more important things to do. <laughs> Other spy stuff. Other spy stuff. We, we can't talk about that. <laughs> no, no, no. We can't talk about that. We can't talk about that. Also, I feel like regularly, Mo is like, Erica, sing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would love to have you sing right now on this podcast. <gasps> you sang, didn't, you told me you were in the opera? I was in the, the opera. I've That's pretty incredible. I mean, I didn't actually know that until quite recently. Really? Uh-huh. When your best friend Natalie was getting her hair done. Oh, yeah. And, and she, she didn't know. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I forgot you were here to witness that. Uh-huh. I was. I was. The thing about Natalie, though, is I'm sure I've told her and she just has a shitty memory and it's probably like, eh, boring. <laughs> I don't like opera. <laughs> but, I mean, the fact is that is I feel like women that we are sort of, I don't, this is probably not the right word, attracted to, chemistry drawn to, mm-hmm. often are multi-talented. Like, this yeah. is what, I feel like there's so much polarity when we meet people. Mm-hmm. But then when you actually have that conversation, you know there's so many layers. So yeah. you, you know, you're my, you, you've been working on my hair for a very long time as a curly-haired girl. Mm-hmm. But yet you're this opera singer. You play like four different instruments. You know, you I are agree. artistic. You're a businesswoman. You're an entrepreneur. I just feel like there's this opportunity to elevate, raise, you know, be there for other women. Yeah. And, and I don't know, grow. Well, network. Yes. Share stories. Yes. Show I, people doors, open glass doors. I mean, all that stuff. Um, uh, isn't it glass ceilings? Okay. Delete that. <laughs> so I don't look no. stupid. <laughs> open glass windows. Those too. And open glass anything. Yeah. Like a bottle of wine. <laughs> I mean, that's always top priority. Cheers. <laughs> yeah. And I think like, I, and this may resonate with you, as I get older, I'm like quality over quantity with the people that I associate myself with. But I feel like what you just listed is like being drawn to people who have interest in qualities that are balanced between their right and left brain. Does that resonate with you? It does. And you know, it didn't before because you start to, you become really like you have this like univision Mm -hmm. of what you need to be doing and what you need to be accomplishing. And then as you get older, you're like, that's not enough. Mm-hmm. At least I think the women that I like again drawn to, it's always about the better tomorrow than yeah. you are today. Yeah. And 
the people that I love to be with the most are the ones that are growth oriented, right? There's a version of, we can make this better. We can make this better for ourselves, our families, our communities, whatever else that is, Mm -hmm. that's like beyond our little bubble within ourselves. Yes. Growth oriented is such a great way to say that. I'm trying to remember the word that, remember you were doing that, what's the word for 23? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Mine is generate. Generate. Mm -hmm. 2024 for you is generate. Generate. What's yours? Do you have one? Well, you gave me one, and I can't remember now what it was. Well, obviously, it resonated. (laughs) (laughs) That really stuck. (laughs) So, okay, Mo, you are a woman doctor. How did you accomplish that? Oh, I love this. (laughs) I think I honestly was able to get to where I am because of my dad. Oh. Oh, yeah. Okay. He literally is the, the reason I am who I am today. Mm-hmm. And I know lots, maybe lots of daughters say this about their dad. <laughs> and then lots Not of daughters one. don't say that about their dad. <laughs> yeah. But <Me> who? <laughs> but I was a total daddy's girl. Aww. And I, I think I shared this with you. I, you know, my family, we were undocumented till I was 12. Yes. And, you know, we came over. Um, we had a visa. It wasn't like we came illegally. We mm-hmm. came legally. We just never left. Yeah. Where did you come from? From England. Mm-hmm. Parents are Indian. They moved to the UK. And then in the late 70s, my dad came and then the rest of the family came in the early 80s. Okay. So we moved to New Jersey, like many <laughs> Indians do. And then we moved to Florida. Oh, I don't think I knew this. Oh, really? This is so fun. Daytona Beach. Oh my God. What? Uh-huh. In the 80s, the height of the HIV epidemic. Oh. And my dad bought a little motor lodge Mm -hmm. and, you know, we stayed on the motor lodge in a very tiny little apartment complex, not even a complex. It was just a tiny room. Yeah. And like Schitt's Creek, kind of like Schitt's Creek. Actually, we just had one room though. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. For for five of you? For four. For four. Okay. Because my sister Mm -hmm. didn't live with us. We we couldn't bring her over. So she, I didn't actually meet my sister really till I was 12. Oh, interesting. Uh And that was when I became, where my family got residency. And this is a whole other storyline with my dad (laughs) loving being a Republican. Oh my God. Because (laughs) of, you know, under Reagan's administration, Mm -hmm. um, naturalized everyone that came to the U.S. before 1980. And my, my dad came in 1979. So I actually didn't meet my sister, Raj, until she was 12. I mean, I met her when I was a baby, but I didn't know her. Uh And she was raised by my grandparents. Now, this is like not uncommon in Indian culture Uh to be like, you know, you go to the grandparents and you go to the aunt and all of that stuff. Yeah. But there was four of us in that little tiny room. We went to private school because my parents wanted us to have a good education. Yeah. And even though we had this one room, and I wouldn't say we were rich, we were... I wouldn't say we were poor, but you live culturally different mm-hmm. when you're raised in like a community setting, yeah, like absolutely. India. Like even wealthy people in India, like all will stay in the same room. Right. It's like there's a there's a family orientation about the way they think about community, mm-hmm. and you know I think there's a lot to learn about how other cultures care about each other. Sure, and how maybe we're moving away from that in this country? We've moved so far away from that. What, what, so, so tell me what you think about that. Why do you say that? Because you've traveled a lot. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I think just like the contrast, Americans are generally so exclusive, not inclusive, right? Uh, I mean, you look at the traffic in Atlanta, for example, and it's 
hundreds of thousands of cars with one person inside of them. We live very isolated lives and very independent. And I think that that's I think that's part of living in a capitalist society is that they want people to be kind of isolated and sad so that you spend money to make yourself feel better. Um, so if you can get comfort from your grandma in the next room, you're not going to go spend $100 on oldnavy.com. That's what I think about wow. that. Wow. <laughs> that's dark. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not untrue, but... I mean, the perfect balance is probably somewhere in the middle, right? Where it's like you have a, a close connection to family and a sense of community, but also some independence built into it. And I think that you can observe different cultures who land on different parts of that spectrum. I'd be curious to know where the the perfect median is, you know? I mean, do you have you experienced that? Where it's like developed and progressive and innovative. So for me, when when you talk about that balance, Mm -hmm. it's like the folks that can look forward, innovation, progress, you know, building a better society, Mm -hmm. which means you have to let some of your traditional things go. Absolutely. But you still feel that your general responsibility is beyond your own self. I think very few people feel that way. Well, I wonder what cultures do that. See, okay, everybody listening. This is the type of stuff that Mo will just like casually ask me while I'm doing her hair at like 11 a.m. on a Saturday. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh my gosh, like, oh, let's, <laughs> let's, let's get into it, okay? You can't prepare for a question like that. Will you ask it again? Well, which culture right now that you are aware of, because again, you've traveled a lot, mm-hmm. balances that interest of progress, innovation, growth, thinking towards the future Mm -hmm. with all of the stuff that's happening right now in terms of our environment, in terms of the polarity, in terms of our political sort of issues. Yeah. I'm saying issues because I I actually don't even know what words you actually (laughs) slap on to politics. Yes. But then understand clown show, (laughs) shit show. Yeah. (laughs) But then balance that with those traditional components Mm -hmm. of like, you know, thousands of years ago when you knew you couldn't survive without also having that community with you. Like those people died, right? Like those, those like, yeah, the Neanderthals and all of those things that sort of move through like human evolution, they didn't survive. Mm -hmm. You needed to have your tribe. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's because this is an area that I've traveled in the most extensively But my initial reaction to that question is like Scandinavia. Like you've got good city centers with public transportation. You've got affordable housing. You have environmental stewardship. You have a focus on education, on healthcare, on kind of those baseline things that keeps a population happy and healthy because that is the foundation for innovation, right? You can't innovate if you're in survival mode. And so I would say at least from the outside looking in, because of course I don't live there, that seems to be an area of the world where they've, they're at least attempting to figure out in a way that, that resonates with me. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I guess Scandinavia has a lot of money. Yeah. And I want to actually ask that question about the point you raised around you can only be innovative when you don't have to be in constant survival mode. Mm-hmm. And I would offer a different opinion. Okay. And this is going to maybe to your to your listeners be a little bit touchy because of what's going on right now. Lean in. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) Because there is, you know. Touchy is okay if it's educated, right? It's like we need to have, uh, stretch the boundaries of conversation. Well, let's, this is Israel and Palestine. Okay. So, you know, you have clear humanitarian crisis happening in Palestine. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, you know this, that I lived in Israel Mm -hmm. for 
a couple of years, but mm-hmm. this is like in the early 2000s. It was a very different Israel sure. back then, and, and my Israeli friends are quite leftist. Mm-hmm. But because they have to survive, so let's like remove the issue around the genocide and everything happening. I just mm-hmm. want your listeners to understand this is, we're not taking this away, that there is like actual... What you're about to say would apply prior to October it would, it would Well, it would apply to the Israeli culture. Okay. But this, I want to remove it from what's happening right now. And the reason is, is because the Israelis are in survival mode mm-hmm. because of just the location of where they are. Mm-hmm. And so they have to be innovative. And so they've developed, for example, desalination processes and methods where they can, because they don't have fresh water sure. going into Israel. And so they have methods in, in science that can desalinate water. They have ways that they irrigate their crops where they take sewage water, put it back into the desert, use that sand to sift through that excrement basically and then the irrigation feeds back and basically waters the plants and so even though israel like you know israel like i think it rains maybe one one or two months a year okay they have amazing vegetables and amazing food in israel Mm. and they have to because it's a survival thing they will not be able to survive if they can't think of innovative ways to survive so i think there's both there's like there's a version, and that's the the human nature, right? It's human nature where you have survival issues that make you innovate, mm-hmm. and then you have a basic way of safety that your government and your community and everything is meeting your basic needs, yeah. Like Scandinavia, yeah. where you can also be innovative because you have the opportunity and the bandwidth to be innovative, yeah. And then you have like all the stuff in the middle where you're like a single mom. And you have three kids nope. and you work in three jobs. How do you get to be innovative and think beyond your literally your basic needs? Yeah. That's what I picture is just like when you're in that super high stress survival mode. And maybe this goes back to a class thing, but I wonder Scandinavia, of course, has a ton of wealth. There is a lot of wealth in Israel, but this innovation that you're referring to, for example, is that something that everybody living in Israel feels inspired by, or if it's maybe certain tiers of Israelis that are like, have the, how do I word that? Like access to that innovation? Yeah, I guess so. I I mean, I feel like with every country, so even in Scandinavia, where you have a very high like uh, threshold for living there, I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't know what their GDP is, but the Scandinavian countries are very wealthy. They have oil. I mean, like, you know, they get a lot of basic needs met for sure for there, for, for those countries and those people. I feel like countries that aren't at that level, there's absolutely a gradation. I mean, even in the United States where we're like supposed to be one of the most developed countries in the world, like our healthcare system is for fucking shit. It's (laughs) embarrassing. Yeah. It's embarrassing. Yeah. And, you know, for me, working for CDC and seeing the sort of the, the lack of coordination and the lack of, it's all these siloed systems, mm-hmm. yet we're trying to protect Americans, keep them safe, keep them healthy. How do you do that? I mean, to me, as somebody who isn't working closely to it, immediately I'm like, you have to untangle for-profit organizations and systems in basic human needs. But what do you... Uh, you pro- I mean, you could speak to that more highly than I can, for sure. I mean, I'm, you know, while I absolutely believe in there's a, a basic line that we have to serve our communities and our people, 
and that the government should step in for that. I also believe in capitalism because yeah. I think capitalism drives innovation. I agree now, I'm not sure. saying capitalism in like money greedy way, mm-hmm. but I mean, so much data shows that if you drive capitalism in a way, so that so basically not having like oh too many government subsidies, mm-hmm. when you have too many government subsidies, like some countries do, you become complacent. Yeah, you need to have that competition. I mean, right. this is this is me being my my business school stuff where I, I wasn't convinced of this before I went to business school. That's interesting. But after business school, I'm like, yeah, there's actually evidence and data and statistics that show that you need to have competition mm-hmm. and competition drives innovation. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And it's, it's something I struggle with a lot. Obviously, I believe in capitalism. I am a business owner and I love it. And I love that I have the ability to have chosen a career path where I've made a way for myself that isn't something that is on the list of options when you're in high school about to graduate, right? But I also really struggle with where my role as a small business owner fits into the grander scheme. And so there's a lot of things that are important to me, like, I mean, environmental stuff. And it's like, how do you have an online store and, uh, like I'm adding to the problem. I'm shipping things, I'm which uses shipping materials. And we try to use recycled and mindfully created shipping resources or reuse things, for example. But those cost so much more. And then I'm a small business with really small margins. And then I'm like, why am I fucking feeling bad about this when Amazon has 4 million trucks out on the road every hour? And then it's like the illusion that I could do things differently or make a difference feels, I don't know, I struggle with it a lot yeah. about, yeah, like where you where I can fit into that while not negotiating my values. Yeah, yeah. I feel like a lot of people are in that space. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is, but I do think that there's absolute value in capitalism and there's absolute value in making sure that services are provided so that we are meeting basic human needs mm-hmm. and maybe even more. Yeah. And that's not equality, right? That's the difference between equality and equity. Mm-hmm. That some communities, some people are going to need more support yes. than others. Yes. And I feel like as a country, it's so focused on equality mm-hmm. and not equity. Yes. And but when when you talk to people and you say, "Wow, I'm I feel really bad for that Again, that single mom that's working three jobs and she has three kids and she's barely making ends meet. People want to donate to her. Right. But they don't want to donate to the systems issue or solve Mm -hmm. the systems problem that are like letting her having to do that. Sure. And, And anyway, so I think that there's this concept that you're saying of like capitalism and yet this almost internal consternation that people Mm -hmm. are having around being a good person. Yeah. Being a good person service like a, a community member yeah but then also understanding what your your needs are for your business mm-hmm. it's not easy to 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 actually solve and I think that's introspection that each individual probably needs to do for themselves oh I think that if you pulled the average American and asked them to, to describe the difference between equity and equality they wouldn't be able to and immediately my mind goes to I'm sure you've seen that image of it's like a cartoon of three people standing at a fence watching a race oh yeah and like there's a short person and a tall person and a medium height person. And it's like when you put them all on the same size apple crate, 
nothing has changed. But if you give the shorter person the tallest apple crate and the tallest person maybe doesn't need an apple crate, you know, and then the, it's like, ah, equity. That makes sense. That's equity. That's equity. That is equity. Equality is everybody having the same nobody, apple box and nobody that needs, doesn't make sense. Nobody needs the $250 check from, you know, Kemp. Right. Like because he had extra money in his taxes. Yes. Like that's a big I mean, I don't I I would I would love two hundred and fifty extra dollars, yeah. but like I also feel like that single mom working three jobs that has three kids, I'm happy to give her my two hundred and fifty dollar check. Now yes. I'm not saying again, this is this is me saying my perspective. I'm mm-hmm. not saying everyone needs to have this perspective. I just hope that there's more grace as we talk about these kinds of things because yeah. that's to me, what's missing in the conversation. It's very absent in the conversation. And it's very easy, I think, for people to uh, chew on a preordained list of talking points from their, air quotes, political side. You know, like you've you've picked your your jersey on the, on the national scale. And uh, there isn't a lot of grace or even interest, really, in just having a chat um, about, because I think that a lot of people would sit down and at the end of the day, agree on a lot of things. The disagreement is how do we get there, but not that we disagree that this is a, an issue that affects everybody. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's a lot more commonality than differences, but the powers that be certainly benefit from us not feeling you know, congruent in these ideologies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, then you layer on the misinformation, the disinformation and the bombardment of maybe other countries sort of motive, you know, motivated to do that, especially Mm -hmm. right now as elections come up. So I I wonder if there's, and this is a question for you, is do you feel if you were to say for your peer group, Mm -hmm. the top two to three things that you would recommend people do Mm -hmm. as they, you know, it's February, as they move into this year, Mm -hmm. What would those th- two to three things be? We talked about a lot right now. So what would what would you say people should be doing more? To uh, be more equitable? To be more informed mm-hmm. about the upcoming issues. And that could be equity. That could be environment. That could be listen to the prime, like watch the primary, whatever yeah. it is. But we're heading into a, a really tricky year yeah. where... I'm not going to get political on this because I, I am a government official, but yeah. I think that there there's this disillusionment mm-hmm. that's happening, uh, especially in, in young people right now. Yes. And then there's a version of just burn it down mm-hmm. that's also happening. And mm-hmm. so you're like, how do you get people to, to upskill themselves, I guess? I think that's such a great question. I think the first thing is that everybody from time to time needs to have a check-in with themselves and say, Am I in a silo that I have built around myself intentionally, right? I know looking back at 2020, I really, um, I want to articulate this well. Um, uh, I leaned really hard into uh, talking points from one side and uh, didn't, I, I, I put my intellect on the back seat and I let information be fed to me without putting my own, like, hey, let me just Google that. Or let me look at a, a different news source on that. Because it's easier. 
Because it's so much easier. Yeah. Yes. And so I think the most important thing is having diverse options for where you're getting your news and where you're getting your media. And then asking yourself, like, I see people who have really strong opinions about issues that don't affect them at all, which I'm entertained by. And I think it's like, hey, do I know anybody who's actually impacted by any of this policy or this war or this fill in the blank? Like, let me just ask them if we can have a talk. I think so many people are willing to sit down and have a conversation, but they're not going to just put their feelings and thoughts out there unprovoked, which is okay. But I think like, it's really easy. I mean, all trans rights come to mind. Mm -hmm. Um, If you don't know a trans person, it's probably very easy to form an opinion about them that may or may not be fair or correct based on this little sliver of access that you get in your social media silo. And I would say you need to have trans friends or you need to like chat with somebody who has a trans family member and just get that human component to it. And also ask yourself, why the fuck am I all riled up about something that isn't impacting me or any of my friends? Like what a luxury to be confident in my, my gender, right? How thankful am I? And I have trans friends and I'm very, I'm very fortunate that for years and years and years, I've, I've known people who've experienced this and have gone through transitions and, uh, Did I understand it at first? Nope. Um, Do I fully understand it now? No, because I am very fortunate that it's not something that I'm impacted by, but I have so much fucking empathy for people who are willing to say, this is something that impacts me and I, I need to live my true expression. Who the fuck am I to have an opinion about that? You know what I mean? All I want is for these kids to not get bullied at school. I'm not gonna make any comments about the Olympics. I think that there's a lot of like hot button facets of that that like don't actually matter and are so nuanced and niche and people latch onto it. And so I think just finding like, if something makes you, if you get that like feeling about a topic, like take a step back and ask yourself, why am I having such a strong and emotional reaction to this? I love that. I love everything you just said. Like interrogate, (laughs) interrogate, interrogate yourself. Yes. Interrogate outwardly, like find Mm -hmm. out more information and, and stop thinking about, I'm just going to come up and just, this is my decision about this. Yeah. Because you're so right. Transgender youth. They have one of the highest suicide. This that particular population yeah. has one of the highest suicide rates, right? Yes. These, these these kids are killing themselves mm-hmm. because they feel so isolated and so hated, mm-hmm. and that could be a family member's kid. Yeah, and yet you're okay being on online harassing this human. Yeah, that's so embarrassing too. Like, get a life. <laughs> Any adult that has an issue, you know what I mean? It's just like, are you fucking kidding me? Well, I mean, you know, but yet, uh, I'm not, again, some of these people are going to fight tooth and nail for abortion rights, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's still like, if you're worried about someone dying and the fact that there's death happening in pediatric, and like you said, I'm a pediatrician, so this is a population I care very much about. Yeah. But we're not willing to, like, protect all kids, Mm -hmm. whatever age they're at, Mm -hmm. there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance there for me. Yeah. I venture to say a lot of it. I think too, inherently part of being ignorant about something is not realizing that you're ignorant about it. Right. Because if you were aware, you would probably feel differently. And, uh, I'm positive I have blind spots because everybody does. Um, but what I do know is that I make an effort 
every day to expose myself and, and just try to be a well-rounded, informed human being. Even if I don't always get it right, I think if everybody just tried a little bit more, the world would be, or at least our country, would look differently. I totally agree. And some of that is, like you said earlier, if you hear something that's causing you to like contract, yeah. like you feel affected by that, yeah. you should do due diligence mm-hmm. and read the other side. Yes. And I think, you know, I don't want to blame every human right now because we're being force-fed information in a way that's like out of control. Like not when I was growing up, this happened. Mm -hmm. And now it's, it's almost like on this misinfodemic is out, like it is raging. And so we have to do our own due diligence and making sure that we're finding a hot button topic. There's obviously another side. Otherwise it wouldn't be a hot button topic. Correct. And, and inform yourself and take the time to understand, even if it's something you don't believe in. Mm-hmm. And again, I do this because I have, you know, half of my family members are Republicans and Libertarians. Mm-hmm. And the other half is not. And then my mom is completely neutral <laughs> and just does whatever my dad or I tell her to do. But I, you know, I, so I live in just in my family in that like microcosm of a lot of disparate thinking and feelings and emotions about things like the election. Yeah. And it was very helpful to hear, well, why dad, why do you think that way? Mm-hmm. And then him asking me, which is rare because he doesn't ask me usually, I have to yeah. just force feed it back to him, yeah. why I think a certain way. And what's lovely, so my family, we're vegetarians, mm-hmm. and uh, my dad is very into composting oh, and yeah. gardens, <laughs> and there's if there's a bug in my house, my dad will chase that fucker with a glass <laughs> until he captures it so he can let it outside. Exactly. This is not a... like guns blazing Republican. Right. Right. So you're like, why there's so many layers to humans. And if you take the top layer, because that's just what they present on the superficial side, you're missing a lot of the humanity of it. Yeah. I totally agree with that. And and again, I would, I'm assuming that anybody listening to this podcast is also probably like, I mean, yeah, you know, like, so if we all feel that way, is it just that we're being so we're taking the easy path and just taking the bait on the social media misinformation? Like, is that the biggest issue, do you think? So I had read an article that someone said, don't do social media. They said, pick three to four, like, news sources Mm -hmm. that are, like, legitimate and just read those. Yes. So you're just reading objective information. Like, Mm -hmm. again, when I was growing up in the 80s, we didn't have social media. We didn't have all this stuff. You just watch the 6 o'clock news and that's, like, like, that's the data you got. Yeah. But... There's probably, I think, we're exposing ourselves like too much to multi-channel information mm-hmm. that it's just superficial understanding of a lot of different issues yeah. instead of and saying... unverified. Unverified and all that versus saying like proactively, I want to focus on these five things because that's what's my value, mm-hmm. right? And so I think about the environment. I want to understand the plot, the you know, what's happening with the elections. Mm-hmm. I care about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Mm-hmm. For me, of course, it will always be, you know, public health kinds of things that yeah. I want to be on. So you pick your couple of things, mm-hmm. and then you find your specific number of sources, and you go deep. 
yeah. into those sources. Yeah. So you're not just reading a headline. Sure. You're actually researching the work that you do. And that's probably actually going to take less time than you scrolling through TikTok, yeah. getting your news yeah. for two hours at night before you go to bed. That's a good point. And that's also the worst time for you to be scrolling through any electronic device and talking about the news. Absolutely. But we all do it. <laughs> so I recently, on Instagram, I followed like a little over 2,000 accounts. And I was like, this is too many. And there's people in my feed that are annoying. And I went through and unfollowed. I'm down to like 500 something and there's more I want to unfollow. But I unfollowed, I think, almost every news source, lots of celebrities and influencers, people who make me feel bad about myself or who I'm just like, I don't fucking like you. Um, And I'm just like, I really want to curate my news feed to be just like happy and uplifting on social media and keep social media focused on socializing. And then, like you said, get my news from reputable news sources and, uh, you know, and people that you trust. So it's like, One of the great things about UMO is during the pandemic, as things evolved, I mean, we had several times where I'm like, can I call you and just like ask you about what should I do at work with my mask policy? Like some people are starting to drop it. I don't know if I'm comfortable. We're in close quarters. Like talk me through academically what this looks like. And I I was so thankful to have a resource like that because that was so much more valuable than anything I could have Googled because you're able to give me your opinions and feedback on my specific situation. And I'm fortunate to have access to people like you on that topic, for example. But yeah, I think it's really easy to get radicalized in every fucking direction. And you have to put a little bit of intellect behind, uh, why do I feel that way? And I think you're totally right. Like the topics that make your nervous system just go, just spike, that's worth an exploration, perhaps in therapy. Like it's it's like, it shouldn't be that way, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 so that means just having that awareness. Like Mm. I feel tight in my chest, you know, all of those things that we just honestly, we're so busy and we're tired and all the things that are happening externally to us and we don't pay attention to. And I'm saying this as a single woman Mm -hmm. that has time maybe to think through this. I mean, I say I have time because I don't have kids and a husband and all of that. But the point is, is that there are some, Mm -hmm. again, it's an equity question. Mm -hmm. We can't all force our mindset on people right thinking it's an equal situation because it's not correct but I want to pull on the thread you were talking about the pandemic because I feel like you know I had this amazing opportunity to in the beginning of the pandemic in January 2020 I flew out to Seattle to meet the first case that's so cool <laughs> it was very cool. I, I was um, transitioning out. There was a, a CDC assignee, a person that was out there. He's amazing. And he actually went there to meet the first case, but he needed to come back to headquarters. And I have, they asked me to go out there. I know the, the Washington Department of Health very well, and it's an, an amazing, amazing health department out there. They are so innovative, so thoughtful, but it's home rule. So what I mean by that, is that the state of Washington has certainly like at headquarters in the cap, you know, Seattle and all that, their mm-hmm. main public health infrastructure. Mm-hmm. But each of the the different counties there have, they make their own decisions. Okay. There, so there are certain states in the U.S. that do that. Other states, no, it, like it is hierarchical and it goes up, you know, the, the state makes the decision and it has to trickle down. Okay. But here it's a little bit different. But yet that that particular state works so well. So we ended up, going, uh, well, I ended up going to Washington and meeting this, this first case. 
first case that we knew of. Yeah. And he's like, this hospital had literally blocked off like multiple wards. You had to go through multiple checkpoints to get to this patient. Wow. And we were like talking to him through a phone. And he was like the most lovely human. He was so kind to the nurses and was constantly apologetic for like what he was like making all this like work for people. And, you know, you think like in the news, like first case came from China. It's Mm -hmm. like China's fault. Mm -hmm. And then you talk to this patient and he's so humble and he's so thoughtful and, you know, he's, he's just so generous and, and gracious about the care he was getting. Yeah. It felt really bad that he was doing this, yeah. like to, you know, to the nurses and all of that. Sure. And there was this discordance again. Mm-hmm. China's bad, but this patient is super lovely. You know, why do we do that to ourselves? Was he a Chinese national? Mm-hmm. Okay. So he was a Chinese national. Was he visiting the U.S.? He was like, here for business. Okay. And then he came over with symptomatic. And, you know, again, okay. this is the first case we diagnosed. Like, we had thought there was probably transmission maybe happening before. We just I can t- confirm that because I had this mystery illness in December 2019 that in hindsight was COVID. <laughs> I don't know if it came to Atlanta that early. Because it was hitting like the hubs that were, I mean, maybe you, you don't know. I, there's, we didn't have the surveillance in place to right. be able to detect it. We needed the test to come out and all of that. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, it was this is so different from where we are now. It's like oh, yeah. mind boggling, right? This guy is in a hospital with like multiple checkpoints to even get to him, and he's in a room. We have mm-hmm. to talk to him through our phone. When you go into the room, you are full on protective equipment like as if it's an you know an Ebola ward yeah and now look at us yeah I have COVID I might I'm just gonna go hang out at the bar you know yeah and I'm not being judgmental about this at all and my point is that we've changed our situation have changed the virus actually hasn't changed yeah it keeps evolving it's still COVID you know all of that what's changed is us yeah our comprehension our understanding of what's happening with the virus, but also our immunity. Mm-hmm. When this virus came, nobody had immunity. So this virus was able to whip through the globe super fast. Yeah. Nobody had literally an immune cell against this virus. Yeah. Now, more than 95% of humans do, yeah. right? So we're just in a very different place. Mm-hmm. And it's exciting that we've gotten here. We got here because of vaccines. Mm-hmm. We got here because of people getting infected, you know, it's just a different place that we are right now. Absolutely. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. We're tired. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, but it is so interesting, the contrast between early through mid 2020 and where we're at now. And I had a guest on a couple episodes ago, her husband got COVID in March, 2020. And he ended up, I mean, I think it was like 140 something days of being ill, multiple lung collapses, surgeries, ICU visits. But she was saying like, it was in that stage where we were wiping down our groceries and like, she could only drop him off in front of the emergency room. And then people are in full hazmat. They're like, can we even touch this person? Um, and the co- the contrast between that and now is just out of control. Like I was at a concert last night and I mean, I saw one or two people wearing masks in my, and now, which I think is good. And I'm sure you agree. Like, I think if people are either have a comorbidity or they know they're not feeling well or whatever, there's less shame. And it's just like, well, I'm just going to wear a mask. And it's like literally fine. And I don't think people give a fuck or they shouldn't give a fuck because it doesn't affect them. So I love seeing that understanding also 
Yeah, I feel like there could be maybe even more understanding, <laughs> honestly, <Fair>. where <laughs> people have, you know, it's that balance again, that yin and yang around, you know, sort of agency is one of my mentors used to call it. Like the mm-hmm. individual autonomy to like, again, that concept we talked about earlier about protecting your community. Yes. And being like actually thoughtful about not wanting to spread a disease to a cancer patient. Correct. Because you don't know that patient has cancer. Yes. And so if you want to wear a mask, my dad, again, a Republican, mm-hmm. like a staunch Republican, never leaves the house without a mask. Yeah. Still, like to this day. To this day. Yeah. Because my dad, he's 84 mm-hmm. and he has asthma. Mm-hmm. And whenever he gets sick, it throws him into like like the, the an entire flare, he gets pneumonia, he gets sinusitis, and then he has to go on all the things. Yeah. And, you know, he knows for himself, like masks has been his his savior. Sure. So an 84-year-old man with asthma wants to wear a mask, let him wear a mask. We should not be shaming other people that want to take care of themselves in different ways. And in uh, exchange, taking care of you because they're not, you know what I mean? Like when I sit next to somebody on a plane wearing a mask, I'm like, fuck yeah. Yeah, like, <laughs> I wear a mask on the plane. I don't wear a mask generally everywhere else, but I wear still wear it on a plane. Yeah. They're too I close mean, to me. Like, yeah. <laughs> There's good ventilation on planes now with HVAC systems and all that, but I still, yeah, yeah I'm still pretty careful on flights. I remember getting into it with somebody I was, I'm close with kind of early pandemic and explaining exactly what you just said of being like, even if you don't care about this or you're convinced that for some fucking reason you're not going to get sick or if you do get sick, you're not going to be hospitalized. Just being mindful of the fact that you live in a community and that your actions potentially impact other people. It, it doesn't make sense to me why people got so inflamed over the request to try to keep themselves and others safe. Because that was the essence of the mask mandate was let's just try to help each other. And whether or not you think masks work or not, okay, are you a fucking scientist? Like the number of people I argued with who have zero training or background in uh, infectious disease or any of this, but have such strong opinions. I mean, I wanted to pull my hair out. And uh, we see that response across so many topics. This one was just incredibly important. Yeah. So... I do want to make one clarification because CDC does not issue mask mandates. They there's very narrow areas that they do like yeah. travel. Yeah. But we actually don't have regulatory authority to issue mask mandates like right. at a state level. That that comes from the state. Right. But, you know, to your point, it's like absolutely like why is it so inflammatory? And it goes back to that question, are you taking away my individual rights? Mm-hmm. Or are you helping me protect a community? Right. And again, I think misinformation, disinformation, you know, information coming up from unreputable sources mm-hmm. makes something so, to me, generally quite clear, which is science yeah. and public health, where yes. we're trying to protect humans, make it so distorted that we're no longer considered like a value to society mm-hmm. is to me what's the most concerning. Like the oh, the lack absolutely. in trust for public health that has happened because of the pandemic mm-hmm. and because of misinformation and disinformation from multiple sources yeah. is so heartbreaking. Yeah. It's so heartbreaking to, certainly for me, but so many of us at that work at the agency. Because yeah. we work there to do this work. I could absolutely not be working at CDC and making more money in private practice. Yeah, sure. And but I'm not saying 
you know, I, I'm doing this for the money and mo- none of us are really doing this for the money. Yeah. But that passion. it is the passion mm. of doing something good for the world, doing something that matters. Yeah. But doing it in a scientific evidence-based way yes. that, that will actually live beyond us. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like the yes. information I'm doing or on all that stuff is, should outlive me as a human. Which is uh, amazing. I remember like every time I would see or hear something negative about the CDC, I would think of you. I would think of my other, I mean, I'm very fortunate. I have so many clients that work at the agency with you. And I'm like, man, these are just like normal people, just like us who are just going to work in a pandemic, trying to do their absolute best and just working with new information as it comes. But again, I sometimes will take for granted uh, how fortunate I am to have access to people like you and that most people don't. And so it's like when you hear about the CDC, it's just on a little quick news clip and uh, maybe it's something uh, that's been skewed. (laughs) Yeah. Or sterilized, right? Like it's just so this like numbers thing and there's not a human face behind the work that got to that point. Right. So I think that's probably with everything when you're trying to boil it down to the like the bottom line mm-hmm. that you forget that there's there's humans there that actually work. I mean, so yeah. during the pandemic, awesome. lots of my colleagues were working, you know, more than 12, 15 hours a day. They yeah. they did not see their kids grow up. They 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 basically, you know, they had their kid and then they missed out for yeah. a year or two. And that is constant still. Like people are so burnt out in public health mm-hmm. and they're quitting. And I think you know that data. People are quitting healthcare. They are quitting public health mm-hmm. because they're like, why am I fucking bothering yeah. doing this job anymore where, I, sure, I have the passion still, mm-hmm. but I, I, nobody cares about it. Like, no one cares that I'm doing this job anymore, so why should I put myself into this position? Right. And s- there are people that have been threatened physically, mentally, like threatened by external sources because of the work they're doing that they've had to have, you know, sort of police or, you know, outside their homes, making sure that no one's going to try to shoot them. You know, it's scary because this is like not at all what we came into this for. Yeah. I fucking bet. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. So Mo, speaking of your work in public health, you also worked on Ebola. Mm. Is that something that maybe has a fun story or maybe not a fun story, but are there any interesting stories about that? Oh my God. I, so yes, I did deploy for the Ebola response. So this is, this is like 10 years ago in 2013. Okay. And, or was it 2013? Was it 2014? It's probably 20. It started in 2013, Ebola, the first case during that outbreak in West Africa was started in Guinea, mm-hmm. but then it spread to the neighboring countries, specifically Sierra Leone and Liberia. And that's where I was uh, deployed was Liberia. Okay. But I have to start a little bit to tell you about Liberia. I think are, are actually important to understand okay. about why this outbreak spread so quickly. So the, the first thing is that Liberia has 15 different counties and most of those counties are like, I don't know, 100 to 500,000 people. But Monserrato County, which is where the capital is, Monrovia, is over about, you know, about 2 million people. Okay. That county is on the water. It's on the Atlantic Ocean. And there's a pretty heavy rainy season from May to, I think, November. Okay. So that's actually a very important point because it makes 
Monrovia, quite swampy. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, again, the first case happened uh, for Ebola during that massive outbreak in Guinea, and it started to spread. And I think it was March 2014 where Liberia saw its first case. And it spread really quickly, like spread. And it spread in Montserrano County in a way that was just untenable. It was like traumatic. Bodies were lining the streets. The hospitals didn't have enough capacity to take mm-hmm. care of these patients. There were 50 doctors in Liberia. That meant one doctor. 5-0 in the whole country? Mm-hmm. One doctor per 70,000 Liberians. Whoa. They did not have the infrastructure to take care of an Ebola outbreak. So they obviously had to bring in NGOs. Medicine Sans Frontier was one of the... They're incredible, that, that particular NGO making, you know, sort of taking care Will of... Will you tell people what an NGO is? Non-governmental organization. <laughs> <laughs> and it's Doctors Without Borders. They come in, you know, with actually quite limited funding to do these kinds of crisis types of things. Yeah. Can you... Sorry, will you briefly explain to people, like, what is Ebola? How does it spread? Mm, yeah. So Ebola is... it's. it's a virus. <laughs> I'll start with the symptoms. I just feel like that's the easiest to start with. Yeah. But the virus that, it starts with like flu-like symptoms. So all of us have had the flu before. Mm-hmm. Headache, body aches, you know, all of those fever, all of those kinds of things. But it progresses quite rapidly into severe vomiting and severe diarrhea. Mm-hmm. And that leads to hypovolemic shock. So what hypovolemic shock is that you're so dehydrated, you're like your systems basically collapse. So one of the basic treatments for this is IV fluids, but you're in Africa. Mm -hmm. You don't have that infrastructure to do IV fluids, and you certainly don't have money. You know, all the the doctors to actually do all of this stuff. So there's other treatment for it, but that's the basic one to keep people alive, and that's not there. Uh So people are dying. How is it transmitted? Sorry, you're probably getting there. I'm sorry. Yeah, lot, it's body fluids. Okay. And so it's like tears and vomit and diarrhea, like stuff that comes out of your body okay. is how it gets transmitted. Okay. But it's a really good question because the other key point, number two, so the first one is that it's pretty swampy in Liberia during yeah. those months because of the rainy season. But the second point is the, the most infectious you are is right before you die. Oh, cool. <laughs> So the viral load, the amount of virus in your body goes up and up and up and up, and then you die. Okay. And so this is a second critical point because dead bodies are highly infectious. Mm. And then you have people, because there's no infrastructure, there's, you know, the hospitals can't have, they don't have their like areas where they keep the dead bodies. So they're just putting them out on the streets. People are dying on the streets right in front of the hospitals. So dead bodies are like piling up in Liberia Uh during March, April, June, like that sort of mid 2014. And what do you do? Because there's no place to put them. Can you burn them? So that's what they did. Okay. But here's the, the issue is that West African culture, it, like having cremation is like an absolute violation Ooh, of their culture. Okay. So West Africans believe in this like ultimate paying of respect when, to the dead. Mm-hmm. And they embalm and then for weeks they'll keep the body alive where they do a lot of physical touch to the body, oh, combing, brushing their teeth, letting other relatives come in to see them and pay their respects. It's like, it's an important cultural practice 
for West Africans. Okay. And then they'll do the burial. And now you're telling them to sever all those ties through cremation. And so it makes sense probably for people like you and I that are probably going to cremate ourselves, but it does not make sense to West Africa. So you have a decree that's made by the President's relief in August of 2014, where she's like, I have an untenable situation. There's mm-hmm. bodies lying the street. These bodies are infectious. Yeah. And there's nothing we can do except cremate. But then you have a cultural society that's like, we don't believe, like, you're basically telling me I can never talk to my ancestors again. Right, right, right. So what happens? People find loopholes and they started to do secret burials. Okay. So what that is, is that they're taking the bodies illegally across different areas so that they can bury them in different parts of Monrovia and just avoid the sort of cremation. And what does that do? You have secret burials happening with Ebola-infected bodies that would set off flares of Ebola in other parts of the country because they're infected. Radioactive. It's like... pretty much a chain reaction. So, oh, wow. But, you know, as if it's your dad... What do you do? If it's your Burn grandfather? Him. Burn him. Not to West Africans. Yeah. <laughs> this is that per, that POV situation. Tough like for sure. You have to understand the anthropology to be able to make the right recommendations for a community. Right. President Sirleaf did not have a choice. There were bodies literally laying on the street. Like how many people passed away during that spike? The the the, out, the outbreak, outbreak. outbreak epidemic, the Ebola epidemic. So it is it was one of the biggest ever recorded. And this is just the numbers we know. I think it was 30,000 okay. people okay. that were got it. But that, people think that's quite underestimated. Yeah. Um, and about almost half of them died. Wow. Right? Is that the traditional mortality rate for Ebola? Or is it because they're under-resourced? Well, so generally Ebola only happens in under-resourced countries. So okay. like think about that as your baseline. But okay. general, so we call it case fatality rate. And that is usually between 25 to 75 percent. Wow, that's a big range. But the thing is, is that this has never happened ever, this magnitude where it spreads so quickly to mm-hmm. many countries before. And what the, made this unique? Oh, I love this question. So obviously <laughs> the basic questions, like they don't have infrastructure, either public health infrastructure or healthcare systems. Yeah. So like you're not taking able to take care of the patients the way you need to. Yeah. But I think the key things was, number one, is that it hit, moved into urban areas. Mm, okay. A lot of people. So that was that initial point I made where 2 million people. Well, when you start to get Ebola in crowded areas, you're going to spread pretty quickly. Yeah. I think a second point is that the international response was delayed. So there was a lot of criticism against the WHO. I'm not going to comment it. I actually am not well-versed in it mm-hmm. to know you know, what's right and wrong, but there was, and Medicines on Frontier, the director came up and criticized the international community for not helping earlier. Okay. Like international response started when they started to see it in other countries. The U.S. had 11 Mm -hmm. cases of Ebola because of this. Okay. And most of those cases were in medical workers. So again, that point number three with Ebola is that the population, you're going to pick one that was most affected are healthcare workers. Yeah. These are the people that are trying to do a good job, mm-hmm. trying to make sure that their patients are protected, but not bringing it home to their own families. And this sure. is similar to, to COVID. Yeah. Like, you I know, the protocols are pretty much the same. Well, it was in the beginning times, yeah, but then, you, knew. you know, you go to Liberia, it's like hundred degree weather. Ugh. Like they don't have, 
they don't have like the sort of capabilities that we do for like the, the, the things you need to do to right. make yourself you're comfortable yeah. and it's still not you know I I can wear an N95 mask because I just I, I still do when I see patients yeah my face gets ripped up when oh, I get home absolutely those things are tight on your face if yeah. you wear it properly and they fuck with your ears like it's not comfortable it's not comfortable yeah. but you know you want to you want to protect yourself and you mm-hmm. want to make sure when you go home mm-hmm. you're not spreading that to other people absolutely so the urban thing was one of the main reasons that it spread so quickly. The la- this sort of slow international response was another criticism for it. Okay. I would give so many people Ebola if I was in Liberia because I am so sweaty. Like in 100 degrees, I'm just picturing myself like <laughs> I'd be giving bitches Ebola right and left. <laughs> I wonder how long you would last though, Erica. Five minutes. I'd be like, is there a Louis Vuitton around here? <laughs> I'm, I just feel like you'd be a dead body on the street pretty quickly. For sure. But at least everyone would be like, you can burn her. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. You know, it's so what you raise is a really important <laughs> point because another area, there was a lot of inequity in terms of care. Uh, to bring it back, yeah. And so I went to Liberia in November of 2014. So at this point, the cases were actually starting to come down. Mm-hmm. And, and again, because of the process, lots of things were happening. So contact tracing to make sure like we're containing the virus and the the, the cremation policy, like multiple things were happening and, you know, medicines on frontier, taking care of patients Mm -hmm. to make sure patients like they weren't spreading. Yeah. So it started to come down when I was getting there, but this is always the issue. They call it the last mile. And the idea of the last mile is like you're no longer at the height of the thing, but like it just keeps going. Mm. Like the tail keeps man, you know, it keeps going. And if you don't manage the tail, it could come back up again. Okay, that makes sense. And so when I got there, I was supposed to do infection control stuff, like training. Yeah. But I sort of switched roles when I got there. You just, you know, we're nimble when yes. we go with CDC no, deploys. No. We just do what we're told. <laughs> and I ended up being assigned to the 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 safe and dignified burial team as a CDC sort of assignee. And what that means is that this issue with dead bodies like floating around and dead bodies being a good indicator of how the outbreak is going. Mm -hmm. So my specific role was actually just to actually analyze the data to be like, is the trend, the the number of positive people, Mm -hmm. is that coming down? Yeah. And it was, which was really exciting to see. So Despite, you know, trains are coming down, there's still a lot of secret burials happening because people are like, the trends are coming down. Were those, sorry, were were people, would you get in trouble if you were caught for that? Or was it sort of like a, ah, if it's that important to you, like, go ahead. Like, how strict was the government? So they were strict if you didn't have money. Ah, <laughs> this is I the see. equity issue. Okay. So CDC had a test that would t- be able to test dead bodies. It was like a cheek swab. Okay. But who Did had access? to do that? I didn't, so I didn't do it specifically, I, you okay. know, but our CDC is the one that developed the test. Okay. But it's not intended to be like, you, Erica, have Ebola. It's a, it was like a population test to just basically understand the trends. Okay. But people started using the test to be like, my uncle who died doesn't have Ebola because that test ah. was negative. Okay. Now, who gets those tests? It's not poor people. It's not people that don't have access. And so what ended up happening is that you would have these like, like, like massive, like funerals, not 
cremations, but mm-hmm. actual burials happening with rich people that were in these cemeteries and these like burial areas were happening in the poor parts of town. Yeah. And the poor people are sitting there looking at it and saying, I don't understand what's going on. Like, why do they get to bury? And my grandfather had to die through cremation. Right. Now, if you were living there, what would you do? If I was living there? Yeah. If you were like, didn't have the means or access and you saw that happening with wealthy people having burials. Yeah. I mean, I'd be like, fuck this. If they can do it, so can I. Exactly. So that's what happened. And that's the sort of kept launching the secret burials that were happening. So there was smuggling of bodies happening across the center, across like, you know, the the rivers there. And there was sort of an infamous story of a woman who had died in Nukrutown, which is one of the very heavily dense areas of Monrovia. And she actually was the daughter of one of the tribal leaders in in another county, like the neighboring county. So this is a big deal. Yeah. Because tribal leaders, again, 15 counties, tribal leaders are the ones that actually run the show. Okay. So they put lipstick on her. They put sunglasses on her. Oh, my God. We get a Bernice. (laughs) They put her in a taxi. And they had two family members holding her up in the taxi cab. And completely did a weekend at Bernie situation. Ran her across the district, like the county lines. And so that she could have like an actual burial. Well, she ended up actually having Ebola because someone sort of tipped off the security guard. And then one of the NGOs was able to run and get that cheek swab. Oh my God. There were thousands of people at that burial. (gasps) If you don't understand the anthropology of your guidance you are going to do this kind of stuff. And this goes back to COVID. Yeah. You have to understand what a community is willing to accept. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, for CDC, this is like one of our priorities. Like we have make guidance because it's evidence-based, but we want to know, like, does that resonate with you? Yeah. You know, because if they're not going to adhere to it, it doesn't matter. You can, you can be very pure about the science, but if it's Mm -hmm. not implementable, what are you going to do? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So when I got there, again, it was, you know, all this stuff like floating around about the secret burials and this like inequity happening between, you know, the wealthier population of Liberia. And I was just following along. Like I was trying to understand the situation. I was connecting with partners, like these amazing Liberians that are doing everything they can to get this country out of this outbreak. Yeah. And I went on a burial run with the Red Cross. And that was the first time I had done this. I'd I'd done it a few times. And there was uh, a man, he was an elderly man that had, uh, had basically, he was in his boat, in his canoe, in this little stream fishing, I guess, downriver from this village. And he had a heart attack and died and and basically drowned. So the Red, poor, right? Like, Mm. so the Red Cross came in and was like, I'm sorry, even though I we know like this was not Ebola, mm-hmm. we're going to have to cremate him. Oh, and damn. I can't, t- like, I still hear it, this, like, guttural wailing yeah. from the women in the village. It's like that, you know, I don't know if you've heard yeah, yeah, um, yeah, West yeah, African yeah. women's. It is this guttural sound that you feel it in your stomach that as they were fishing him out of their, uh, you know, just the fact that, uh, an elder had died in the village, but that they were never going to be able to connect with him again because yeah. he was going to be cremated. Why did he have to be cremated? 
That was the policy. So any dead body, even if it was for sure not Ebola. I mean, it was always like the, do you know, kind of thing, because we okay. never had a, that individual test, right? Oh, I see. Okay, okay. But, but it wasn't happening because wealthier people had access to the test and were able to somehow na- you know, circumnavigate the, 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 the decree. Right. And these folks didn't. And I was like, so like, uh, honestly, I still have trauma from watching that when it, you know, this could be anyone's parent that you see this happen to. Mm -hmm. And so after that, when it got really, really visible, like, I mean, I saw it, I felt it, I heard it, you know, all the senses like come alive. Mm -hmm. It became a different story for me and I kind of became a rebel and I was like a civil rights person, even though my role, I was supposed to analyze the data. And we started to find ways. I started to partner with the international, you know, Liberian Red Cross, Global Communities, Masakafawa, who's this giant in Liberia, to be like, this is like no longer okay. Yeah. And what it was hinging on all of this was $300,000. Now, I just want to put that in context because the United States spent over $30 billion to stop the outbreak the Ebola outbreak in, in West Africa, mm-hmm. this is literally drops in the bucket. That's nothing. What that money was for is to buy, it was a negotiation between the Liberian government and a tribe to buy a, a plot of land mm-hmm. that could be used for a cemetery. And that cemetery would be away from the swampy land mm-hmm. and in a way that was going to be super, like they would do the bleaching and all the things to make sure Ebola was off the body, but that okay. people could actually be buried. Seems like a great compromise. Why did it take four months? It took months to get this negotiation in line. So, you know, there was this whole thing of like, I'm I'm like, like, you know, talking to the U.S. ambassador. I'm like, if you can't get this thing. So at this point, I'm like working on one adrenaline, like, like adrenal gland cell. I was like so fired up. I lost like 15 pounds. Like you don't care anymore. Like what an asshole you are. You're just like, like you're in survival mode because they're in survival mode. Right. And so you're doing what you can to make that switch to be like the advocate for the Liberian people that couldn't be their own advocate. Mm-hmm. And I'm not just saying it was me. I mean, I was the dead body person. I, my, uh, my predecessor, <laughs> it got really dark. <laughs> but my predecessor, her nickname was, her last name is Havers. Uh-huh. So they called her Havers Cadavers. Ooh, that's mm-hmm. just, you ha- kind of have to. <laughs> yeah. Well, mine was Mo Dead Bodies. Oh. It just, yeah, it's gallows humor, basically. I'm here for it. But, you know, you you do what you got to do to get yeah. that done. And, you have to um, insert humor into situations like that, too. There's, there's no so way to survive otherwise. and heavy. Yeah, like, that's the only, you, ha- you have to find those little glimmers of, yeah. Yeah. So the, po- the politics around it was just, it was so disgusting yeah. and just slow. And you're like, my dad, like, you know, you start to get very personal about it. Yeah. So um, anyway, the the goal was to get the cemetery up and running so that no one would have to get cremated unless they wanted to. Yeah. That happened on December 25th. I had extended like one week, two weeks. I was supposed to be there for a month. I ended up for like two months there. Um, The cemetery got launched on the 25th of December, Christmas. Wow. And I left the next day. Oh my gosh. My work is done here. (laughs) I felt I couldn't leave until that, that, that happened. And it wasn't for me. It was Masaka Fala. Yeah. Um, when I, I remember you talking about him after you got back and the impact that he had on you. And oh, he's so a, such an incredible human. Yeah. When I brought him, I didn't tell him I was that, that it was done. He didn't know. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, Masaka, it was like a sa- Sunday. 
I can't remember December 20, it was December 24th or something. I was like, Masaka, I have a surprise for you. Can I pick you up? And he didn't know where we were going. Oh, now again, yeah, he's from there, right? <laughs> yeah. He is, he's Liberian. Yeah. And I brought him to the, the cemetery and he like, he's a big man, like huge, a couple, yeah. couple hundred pounds. Uh-huh. He like felt his knees <gasps> and he started crying. Oh my God. Like, like sobbing. And I'm crying and he's crying. Like yeah. everyone is crying because it's ready. It's <sighs> ready to finally stop this issue about equity in his people. Yeah. And, you know, I, um, I don't know. I just, I will never forget that image of him, this big man falling to his knees, mm-hmm. praying God. Like he was like, you know, lifting up to heaven. I'm not religious, but like he yeah. was lifting up saying thank you thank you thank you like wow. it was like, just like a big him, milestone like, <laughs> but you don't you start to like <laughs> you don't care about what you believe or not of right course. it's all about like what does he believe because I'm going to believe what he believes because yeah. he finally felt that you know a major milestone for for that country looking back over the expanse of your career is that one of the most profound moments of like this is why I do what I do I think for me, I mean, there's lots of things I do that I feel are very impactful, but I think mm-hmm. just personally for me, it's when I'm in the field yeah, and when I'm working with other people that are just mm-hmm. like putting themselves at risk, like Masaka does every day yeah. and understanding how the community actually solves problems for their community. Right. It, it pulls you off whatever version of you think is up there mm-hmm. to make sure like actually what you're saying at CDC is actually going to be implementable. Yeah. Wow. I think there's a lot of amazing takeaways and parallels that that story can be applied to. I mean, I, I think the one thing I would love, you know, what I think is that I'm just like one person at CDC that did that. Mm-hmm. There's so many of us that do this, that put themselves at risk. We have people propelling out of helicopters into Afghanistan. I had one of my colleagues, also in Liberia, get chased out of a village, like with a machete. Whoa. We go into situations where we don't know what the virus is. We don't actually know how to control it. And public health workers are literally sort of individually putting themselves at risk all the time. Yeah. But I don't think any of us would change that. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I think we just feel like not just it's the right thing to do, but it's like it's a calling, I guess. Does that make sense? It's a yeah, calling. I was just about to say, you're obviously called to do that. Yeah. And, and I don't think there would be another place that I would feel more satisfied. Of course, there's things I want to change. At, you know, it's the government, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's not perfect. Sure. But the work that I think we do at the agency, again, not perfect. Mm-hmm. There's always room for improvement. But that's what our, you know, individual goals are, growth and yeah. being a better version of we are, you know, tomorrow than we are today. Yeah. But... That fire, it's like, I had a mentor say this to me, it is the fire in our belly Mm -hmm. to do this work. Mm -hmm. And I just don't, like any version of this, I don't really see being different. And I'm not saying just just for me, I'm saying many of us at the agency, it is a calling. Yeah. Ugh. It's so beautiful. Thank you for all of your hard work. I mean, it's so impressive. And I can't imagine what the world would look like if we didn't have people like you who had that calling and answered the call. I mean, I think a lot of people live their lives knowing that there's a phone ringing and they're like, I can't answer it. And it's a really beautiful thing to see what you can create and the impact that you can have when you do. Yeah. Cheers to 
Cheers to my my colleagues in public health. Yes, cheers <laughs> and thank you. <laughs> I love you, Erica. I love you. <laughs> well, damn, Mo, this has been so interesting, so inspiring, and uh, if you've listened this far, I I hope that you've enjoyed this little snippet of somebody who I get to enjoy so much more frequently. <laughs> I just, what do you think people's takeaways should be from this episode? Hmm. So I guess number one is, I think you said this really articulately, where take, when you're getting information, vet it, mm-hmm. you know, like take do due diligence yeah. to make sure like what you actually are hearing is really what you should believe. Yeah. Maybe number two is there is a, a version, a balance between agency and individual autonomy mm-hmm. and taking care of, you know, outside of yourself. And that might be different for every person. Yeah. Like your stage might be different. I feel like my mom's her stage. My my mom's stage is her family, like mm-hmm. her family. Mm-hmm. My stage is the global stage. Yeah. Find out what that stage is for you, but it shouldn't just be you on the stage. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's so simple, but so yes. Who's on stage? Who with else you? is on Focus stage on with that. you yes. that you are going to make sure is okay? Yes. And if your answer is just you, you're the problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, just think more. Think think broader. Because. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or and, and watch Into the Wild, maybe, and realize, oh like, gosh. you can't just be on the stage by yourself. No, it's you unhappy cannot. life if you do. Yeah. Oh, that's really Those good berries, thing. man. <laughs> Don't eat those berries. Every time. <laughs> I love it. Well, Mo, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your candid sharing of interesting information and just your stories and your your hard work and perseverance. It's really inspiring and cool talking to people like you. And I, I hope that we've done a good and entertaining job of kind of lifting the veil of public health and letting people just connect with and access just a regular human being who's just out there trying to make an impact and do their best. It's really fucking cool. And I love that you're making an impact in your in whatever stage you are, which is not just you on that stage. (laughs) Despite my best (laughs) efforts. (laughs) Thank Um, you, Erica, for having me. Yes. Thank you so much for your time. Well, if you've made it this far, thank you so much again for listening to this episode of Clover Club. As always, listeners get 10% off. I'm always refilling my wine glass. Uh, Listeners get 10% off at hawkinsandclover.com with promo code CLOVERCLUB, all caps. And you can find us on Instagram at CLOVERCLUBPOD. And it's been a while since I've asked for, you know, like ratings or reviews or anything like that. But if you have enjoyed this episode or any episodes, I'd love it if you take the two seconds to just give us a little boop rating or one minute to write a little review. Every single one makes such a difference. And yes, thank you so much for listening. Mo, thank you again for your time. And uh, we will hear you next week. Bye-bye. Yay. Cheers.